Turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. Today we're going to be looking at just the first couple verses. Um, We're actually going to be looking mostly at some background information so we can kind of set the context for the letter before we really get into um, much with the text. So uh, you do have a couple of points in your notes that we'll we'll go through, um, but uh, I just kind of want to introduce things today. So first of all, let me tell you why I wanted to move on to Colossians. Uh, my plan was to move on to Colossians after we finished Acts, but I've mentioned to you that uh, that first week I was studying the Holy Spirit just uh, told me that it was like necessary to move into the Sermon on the Mount. So we went there, and I wasn't sure at the time why, but I put Colossians on hold. My purpose for wanting to move into Colossians after Acts was because I wanted, we were studying in Acts, and we the last half of the book is about Paul's ministry, and so we had really kind of, I felt, really kind of gotten to know Paul very well, and his ministry, and his ministry style. So I wanted to move into one of the letters after that that he'd written to uh, churches, but I also wanted to move into something that maybe we didn't get in any kind of experience as we studied Acts. So uh, Acts does not mention Colossae or a church there. Um, there's no since there's no mention of it. There's no like history that we get from Luke in the book of Acts on what what happened there, and there's a reason for that. So I decided, you know, I think Colossians would be a really good one. For that reason, but also because um, we we live in a time when I think, and this has been happening for decades, but we live in a time in a culture where Christ is no longer supreme, and that is the thrust of the book of, or the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. Um, so that's kind of the that's kind of the reason why I wanted to move this way after Acts. Um, We'll try, I'll try to, as we go through the letter, um, kind of draw in the things that we learned from Acts and maybe some application that will help us understand, uh, you know, a little bit about what we learned with Paul's ministry and how it applies here in Colossians as we go. So first, I just want to, the first point in your notes that I want to get to is um, the history of Colossae. So I'm going to give you just some, some history of the city uh, so we have a little bit of an understanding of the people and the culture. This is always a good thing to do anytime you're studying something from Scripture where you've got an, a specific context. And so we have a specific location um, that we can study and get an idea of who the people were, what kind of mindset that they held as Paul is writing into uh writing to speak truth into their lives. Colossae was located in Asia Minor, so today it's modern-day Turkey. Um, long before Paul ever wrote to the church there, the city had been a leading city in Asia Minor. And that's typically, those are typically the places that Paul would go to. But Paul didn't go to Colossae. Um, and so that's, that there is a reason for us to say, why didn't Paul go to it if it was such a leading city? It had been at one time. 
It was located when when it was in its prime. It was located on uh, the Lycus River, and it was at an intersection of two major trade routes, one that ran east-west and one that ran north-south. And so it was right in the middle of two major routes that people would travel to do trade all over the world. And so just like any city that would be in that kind of a situation, it was a, it was a cultural center. It was a center of um, importance in a number of ways. Uh, there were lots of religious uh, practices that would come from all over the world through there. And as those things move through, people come and go, but they bring their own culture, their own practices and customs. Those things sometimes get adapted by the people there. And so it's just this kind of this mixture of the world in Colossae. Um, That tends to be something that causes a town or a city to prosper. But at some point, I'm not exactly sure when, but at some point that north-south route was moved and they moved it farther to the west and ran and and they when they moved it to the west they caused it to run through another known city from that area Laodicea we've all heard of of Laodicea not only from some of Paul's letters but also from Revelation so when they moved that north-south route west to Laodicea Colossae started to decline in its prosperity and its influence um, as a major city in the area. Um, Laodicea and then another neighboring town, Hierapolis, became much more prosperous than Colossae was. So while it was influential, though, there were a lot of things like the religious culture was a was a big thing there. It was a commercial center. Uh, Coloss- Colossians or Colossae was known for a specific color of wool that they would dye, and it became known like around the world as Colossian wool. And so we're talking a, a city that at one time really had greatness. Being at the intersection of the world, you might say, made it a place that people from all over would come and they, they flocked to come to be a part of it or they would come for a brief time and then move on. But everybody that came through left their influence on the city. That also meant it was a city with a lot of diversity in nationality, a lot of diversity in language, a lot of diversity in customs and that kind of stuff as well. So even though it had started to diminish after they moved the north-south route and by the time, you know, the first century rolls around, even though it had started to to diminish and was no longer prosperous as it had been earlier in its time, that diversity is something that lasted for years to come in the mindset of the citizens. So 
when Paul is on his missionary journeys, as we studied in Acts, and he lands in Ephesus, and I don't know if you remember how long he was there. Paul was there for th- in Ephesus for three years. Um, part of that time was in a prison there. When Paul was in Ephesus, this, this comes from Acts chapter 19, um, there was a young convert by the name of Epaphras who, after converting to Christianity, to he received the gospel and made Christ his savior. He then took the gospel message to Colossae and established a church there around 52 to 55 AD. Um, Paul mentions Epaphras giving them the gospel message in uh, chapter 1 of Colossians, uh, verses 7 and 8. So Epaphras is the one who took the gospel to Colossae and established a church there. Epaphras was from Colossae, so he had a heart for the people of the city. He was planting churches in that whole region. um, As far as we can tell, he probably established the church in Laodicea and Hierapolis as well. So these are churches that Paul writes letters to, but in some cases, if not all cases, Paul had never even met these believers. And I think that's a key point to understand Paul's motivation in the gospel message. Paul didn't start this church. It would have been real easy for Paul to uh, take more of a more of a hands-off approach. You know, talk to Epaphras, give him some tips, pointers here, and how to pastor the church, and focus more on the the ones that Paul did establish because he had a relationship relationship with them. But Paul's understanding of the gospel was that he had been called to take the gospel to the ends of the world, and then he had a responsibility as the one who who was taking that message to also shepherd people who received that message and became a part of the church. Whether or not he was the one who established the church, whether or not he'd met the people. So he wrote Colossians when he was actually in prison. Um, Most of the evidence points to his imprisonment in Rome, uh, which is recorded in Acts 28. We covered that in the study as well. And it was around the year 8060. So he wrote it somewhere around 8060. So the church is young. The church is a, you know, if if Epaphras started establishing it as early as 52, and Paul wrote in 60, the church is only eight years old. It's a pretty young church. So Epaphras... We know that he visited Paul in Rome. He must have visited him while he was in prison. Um, we, so we know from Colossians 1, 7, and 8. And he might have even been imprisoned with Paul for some time. Um, in Colossians 4, 12, once we get to chapter 4 and we touch on the end of the, uh, end of the letter... Paul sends greetings to the church in this letter, and he says to them that Epaphras sends his greetings. So if Epaphras established a church and came to visit with Paul, most likely to find out, here's what's going on in the church, here's some things that we're concerned about, how do I handle this? Um, That was kind of a typical thing with Paul's companions. Um, So if he came to visit Paul, 
then it would be it would make sense for Paul to write out some instruction to them and give it to Epaphras to send it back with him um, because Epaphras has that relationship with the church. But Epaphras doesn't go to take the letter. In fact, in um, in uh, Philemon, sorry, no, still in Colossians 4, Paul sends his greetings, but he sends the letter with Tychicus. And in Philemon 1.23, Paul is referring to Epaphras, and he calls him his fellow prisoner. So there's good evidence to point to the fact that Epaphras probably came to visit him, and while he was there, for some reason, was imprisoned with him, and couldn't bring the letter back to the church. So he sends it with Tychicus. Colossians 4.7 tells us that he's sending this back with Tychicus. So he wrote this young, young church with some instructions on how to live a God-honoring and Christ-exalting life. Um, so it was basically a letter of uh, encouragement, a letter to help them stand firm. Um, because there were issues going on in the church that Paul, as we study, you're going to see that Paul has to address. Now, because of the issues that Paul addresses in the letter, we can see that the church was dealing with some kind of heresy or some kind of false teaching Uh, We don't really know. There's nothing that we've found in the letter or in any other sources, as people have studied this for centuries. We don't really know what that heresy or false teaching was exactly. We just know that there's something off that's being taught, um, and we can figure out, we can figure out like half of it maybe, you know, if you if you only hear somebody on the phone, you only hear their half of the conversation, you can kind of put together some details, but you can't exactly know ex- what's going on on the other end. That's kind of what we're looking at. As we look at the letter, we can see what Paul is addressing, and we can make a little bit of some conclusions from that, but we can't come to a full conclusion on exactly what was being taught that was considered to be concerning for Epaphras. But we can learn a lot about what Paul is at least instructing that we can then apply to life in the 21st century. So that's some of the history of Colossae. Your second point that we're going to look at today is um, we're going to try to analyze the heresy as um, in some general detail today before we start addressing some of those things as we dig deeper into the text. Paul has written them. He says in the two verses we're looking at today, this is just the introduction, but he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So Timothy is with him. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, first of all, that's that's a typical, it's not just typical for Paul, that was a typical way to write a letter in the first century. We put a lot of that stuff at the end of a letter or an email that we send today. You know, we we do say at the beginning, usually who who we're addressing, 
but we sign it at the end. We might send, uh, you know, at the end of a letter, we might have a little bit of a, of a salutation or something like that. In first century letter writing, they started with who they were. The very first thing was to say to state who was writing the letter and to give some kind of credentials to who they were. And so if it was a general of the army sending a letter to somebody, they would list their name and their position. And so Paul here starts off by saying Paul and his position, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Um, and then he includes anybody who tends to be with him doing work at that time. Um, so here he mentions Timothy. In some of his other letters, he mentions maybe two people or um, whoever might be with him. But that's that was typical as well. And then comes who in the letter to. And so after he mentions who he is and gives his title, then he says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And then Paul would always throw on there some kind of blessing from the Lord before he got into the what is typically called the Thanksgiving or prayer section of a letter. That was that was that next section Thanksgiving and prayer is something that was always included in letters. Paul's obviously are always going to focus on Thanksgiving or prayer to God for whatever's going on. So, but these first two verses um very typical for not just Paul, but letter writing in that century. We will get in. Uh, I'll mention something else about that in just a minute. So Paul is introducing this letter, and he's getting ready to address whatever this heresy is. There's evidence for it, um, and there's been some guesses over time as to what it might be. And so I'm just going to give you a few of those that s- tend to be the ones that people uh, lean toward the most. Um, one of the evidences that people lean toward um, indicates that maybe it was just the idea of Judaism. Maybe it was just the idea of Jewish teaching as opposed to the more full understanding that Paul has come to in knowing Christ. And even though Paul did have some, um, you know, he had his more than his share of situations where he would on his missionary journeys establish a church and then as soon as he left the we call them judaizers they would come in and they would try to undo everything paul did and turn them back into jews or or say okay paul's message is okay but you still have to be circumcised you still have to obey the law and and make all the sacrifices and all that kind of stuff and so he had that happen frequently as he was establishing churches, but there's and, and there is some stuff in the letter that that Paul addresses some things that sound Jewish in nature, but there's also strong evidence that the Colossian church was mostly made up of Gentiles. So we're not really sure if the Jewish teaching is the main thing going on here that he's addressing. Um, in the 1800s, there was this, uh, this was like kind of revisited. There was this new passion to kind of figure out what was going on. And so there was some thought that the heresy spoken of um, that Paul's speaking against in the second chapter of the letter 
was most likely Gnosticism that was taught and practiced in the second century. And so that, that was kind of the basis of the, this new wave of people and what that, that caused a problem because they, as they were looking through the letter, they were saying, this looks a lot like Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, Gnosticism really took off full force in the second century. And so the problem that that poses then is if the person writing the letter is addressing things that didn't happen until the second century, then it couldn't have been Paul who wrote the letter. And so there, then there was this debate over who's the author. And that would be a problem for us if that was the case. Um, and because of this, many scholars have debated that for a long time, whether or not Paul is the author, but they've kind of, but they've, as they've studied it more, there's been a, a better understanding of what Paul's addressing in the letter. And it does have some Gnostic tendencies. And what we do know from the first century, in, especially in, even in that specific area of the world, is Gnosticism, it wasn't full blown until the second century. By the second century, it had become no longer just some small, loosely held together ideas in the minds of people into a full-blown philosophy that people live by. It, so it had developed and become solidified by the second century. But in the first century, there were Gnostic thoughts and ideas that were beginning to brew in the minds of people. And it became something that people began to allow to filter into their Christian theology, especially because a lot of these churches were young, new, new converts who were learning the, the theology that Paul was laying out for them. And so it, it's really easy when you are young to not be, not be as um, established in your faith and your understanding of the doctrine. And then if somebody can make something sound 98% right and true and in line with your doctrine, but have something that's 2% off a little bit, it's, it's easy to, to fall into that. And so um, there were people who were then saying, well, some of this stuff was going on in the first century, and it was infiltrating the church. In fact, the Apostle John had to address Gnosticism in the churches in Asia Minor, which is where Colossae is at. And so, and the Apostle John was also not dealing with the full-blown version of Gnosticism that we know today, um, because it was still in its, de its beginning stages of developing. So that does actually place it in the timeline so that it makes it so that there's really not a debate over whether Paul wrote the letter or not. Um, it's possible as well that this heresy could have been, so, so the first one was that it could have just been Jewish thought. The second one is that it could have been Gnosticism. There's the third one that people tend to lean toward is um, that uh, there was this mixture of Christian theology with secular or worldly beliefs or other other religions even. Um, we call that in theology, we call that syncretism, where you mix 
two different religion religious thoughts together and you the blending comes up with something that doesn't look like either one but something new um, in Galatians so another place where Paul's dealing with heresy and false teaching that, that's going on um, Galatians we read that the Galatian churches had abandoned the sound doctrine of the gospel that Paul had given the church when he established it which was salvation by grace alone and they had slipped back into a works-based salvation and in that letter you know you might remember in chapter one of Galatians Paul says to them if anybody comes and preaches a different gospel than what I've given you let that person be accursed let him be cut off from God so in that letter Paul gives that sharp rebuke to the church for allowing someone to come in from the outside and lure them into that trap. And so, as we're trying to figure out what's going on in the church in Colossae, as Paul's writing to them, um, you know, if it was something that was similar to what was going on in Galatians, you would expect maybe a similar type of response. But we don't have that in Colossians. There's no such strong rebuke. And if you look at verse 2, Paul refers to the, the believers in Colossae as saints and faithful brothers. So he refers to them as people who are faithful. And saints, um, saints means somebody who's set apart. It's the same word that we use for holy. And so he calls, look at the beginning um, you don't have to turn there, but like if you were just to flip back a few pages to the beginning of uh, Galatians and read the beginning of that letter, nowhere does Paul call them anything that sounds good. In fact, Paul doesn't even really address them as anything. He he says who he's writing to. Here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip there just so you, I can read it to you. But he says, Paul, an apostle, um, and remember I told you that he has, he's establishing what is credentials are what his title is here he's talking to a church that that he is getting ready to rebuke strongly for basically abandoning the teaching that he left and so he says paul an apostle not from men so he's defending himself this is not something that i came up with it's not something that somebody else came up with that i just jumped on the bandwagon not from men not through man but through jesus christ and god the father who raised him from the dead. And so he's establishing God and God's will is what placed this call on me and gave me the, the authority as an apostle to speak truth to, into your life and to rebuke you when necessary. And so he says, it's through Jesus Christ and through God the Father who raised him from the dead, giving credibility to the fact that God's, that this is um this is an authority to listen to because God has proven through the resurrection. And then he says this, um, you know, he mentions the brothers who are with him, but then he says to the churches in Galatia, that's all we get. Paul's not happy with the, with the believers in Galatia in Galatia. And so they don't, they don't get a, to the faithful saints, to, to the brothers, like none of that. But in Colossians, we get to the saints, the holy ones, and the faithful brothers in Christ. And so 
There's a different letters that I think is worth looking at. The letter to the Colossians carries kind of an idea that this body of believers has been faithful. They've stood firm. There's something going on in the church that he has to address, but they have sta- they've remained faithful, at least for the most part. Um, but chapter 2, when we get there, suggests that there are some philosophies that are somehow being introduced into the teaching of the church that he has to correct. So some have suggested that that that's addressed is not necessarily a heresy that's being pushed from the outside, like Gnosticism being brought in, or Judaism being pushed by the Judaizers, but maybe instead it's a syncretistic doctrine that mixes what Epaphras established for them in the gospel message with the philosophies of the culture that they are a part of. I mean, we can't help but somewhat take the mindset of the culture around us. We don't live in a vacuum. Everybody's culture affects their understanding of the gospel in some way. And so there are some who think that maybe this is just the mindset of the people. And remember, in the background section, we talked about them being at the intersection of the world, and it brought a lot of different mindsets. And so there was this mixture of thought and religious practice and customs and all this stuff. And that lingers in the minds of the people over time. You don't just, be se- you don't just get separated from that when the road moves and your town no longer has so many people coming through. That's something that becomes a part of who we are. One of the commentators that I studied this week stated this, um, and I thought this was worth quoting for you. The danger to faithful believers, so the fact that Paul refers to them as holy and faithful, not like people who have fallen away or people who are... um, you know, in it for their own gain. The danger to faithful believers rooted and grounded in Christ lies not so much in false teaching from outside the boundaries of the Christian church. The danger for the enthusiastic young convert comes from error within the churches, teaching that is largely even emphatically Christian, but which has been influenced more than it knows by the spirit of the age. Okay, that was long. I tried to read it slowly, but I'm going to read it again so you can digest it a little bit more. The danger to faithful believers rooted and grounded in Christ lies not so much in false teaching from outside the boundaries of the Christian church. The danger for the enthusiastic young convert comes from error within the churches teaching that is largely even emphatically Christian, so it's, it's, it's Christian teaching, but which has been influenced more than it knows by the spirit of the age. And I think that is one of the things that plagues the church in America today. That we have teaching that is very much like 
it, it's easy to find a teaching and to pull something out of here and say, here, this is why we believe this. It's hard. It's not as easy to do that if you keep things in their context in Scripture, but it's easy to, like, it's not that hard of a thing to take a teaching and to find something in Scripture and say, this is, this is why I believe that. What's difficult is to make sure that we're teaching this without being influenced by everything around us in our life. That's harder. And if we were to, if we were to be able to, if, if, we, if it was possible for us to step out of our life and analyze it from an unbiased, you know, when I say unbiased, I mean from a mind that doesn't have any influence from the culture around it that you've had for however many years you've been in the culture. If we were to be able to do that, I think we would be shocked at how much our theology is formed by not just this, but also everything we know to be true in life from where we live, the time we live, what's going on in the culture around us, what went on in our household growing up that shaped our mind and our thinking. You know, like there's so many things that could infiltrate. And so I think that is something that plagues our churches today, that we have Christian teaching, and it's largely Christian, and it's emphatically Christian, but it has been influenced more than what we realize by the spirit of the age. So that's just some stuff on the potentials of what Paul is dealing with. Again, we can't know all of that stuff, but we're gathering what we can from what Paul addresses. Um, we use what he, what he mentions in the letters to assume there was something going on in correlation to that. Um, but there is disagreement on exactly what that heresy is because we only have that half of it. Um, but in Colossians... And this is one of the big reasons I wanted to study it. In Colossians, what we see Paul do that is different than some of his other letters is he develops in, in greater depth his Christology. We all have we all have a Christology. That means we all have an understanding and a theology of who we think Jesus is. Paul's letters have a Christology. John, you know, we call it Pauline Christology. John has a Christology. We call it Jehonine. It's kind of a hard word to say. Uh, Christology. Peter, Petrine Christology. Everybody who writes in Scripture in the New Testament has an understanding of who Christ is, and you can kind of see these patterns of their writing as they write about Jesus. Paul develops his Christology on a dip, deeper level in Colossians than what we really see in some of his other writings. And so I'm really excited to study it with all of you to find out this man who, in all the other letters, we're like, man, your understanding of Christ is so deep. And then we get to Colossians and he goes to a deeper level than what we really realize and what he's really done in the past. And so I'm really excited to study that uh, 
with all of you as we move into Colossians. Uh, let me pray, and then next week we will dig into that first section of the letter, the Thanksgiving and the prayer section. God, we thank you for this letter that gives us something that's a little different than um, what we see in other places of Paul's writings. Um, and even though we can't find information anywhere in any of the resources we have that might indicate what this heresy or false teaching that's going on in the church at Colossae, we don't really know what that is. But I don't know that we necessarily need to know it. It would be helpful but you've given us in your word what is necessary for us to have in order to be able to learn it and to learn what's going on and to apply it to life. And so um, even though we don't have that, let us dig deep into this letter so that we can see what you are teaching us by your spirit, what you were speaking through Paul by your spirit. It's, that, it's the same spirit he that filled him as he wrote this, that fills us today as we read it. And so we can, we can, we can dig into this and we can study and we can, by the help of your spirit, come to the understanding that you wanted those believers so long ago in Colossae to understand. And then help us to know how that affects us we, we live in a different culture we live in a different time so things might be not be exactly the same as what they were dealing with back then yet your word transcends time and culture and cuts the heart like a double-edged sword so i just pray that you are preparing our hearts this week to come back and really jump into this next Sunday. And that you would help us to gain a deeper understanding of Christ so that our Christology, we walk out of this study of Colossians with a more developed, more in-depth understanding of who Jesus is. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right.